concluding this morning John's gospel as we've taken the past few weeks to look at the resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples. Uh, We're looking at verses 18 through the end of the gospel, uh, verse 25 of chapter 21 of John's gospel. Uh, Just by way of reminder, I'm picking up partway through the passage I read last Sunday and preached on last Sunday where Jesus was restoring and recommissioning Peter to ministry. And so we'll pick up after Jesus has asked Peter to tend and care for his sheep. Before we read God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let's pray that God would bless the reading and hearing of his word. Lord, when you asked the disciples if they were going to leave you, Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Indeed, you are the word of eternal life. For from you and through you and to you are all things. So to whom else would we go? Help us now, therefore, to hear your word and with joy obey what you say to us that we might find abundant life in you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. John chapter 21, verses 18 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This Jesus said to Peter to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to Peter, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant infallible word. Thanks be to God and to him be all power and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are returning this morning to the final couple of verses of the passage that I preached from last Sunday in which Jesus reveals to Peter the type of death that Peter would die. And although it is communicated in somewhat of a cryptic manner, John interprets for us what Jesus was telling Peter. 
After serving Jesus as a shepherd of his flock for many years, Peter would be taken somewhere he didn't want to go and have his hands stretched out, which John indicates is a euphemism for crucifixion. So Peter would die a death like Jesus died, and Jesus was not hiding this from Peter. Peter was commissioned and then told that there would be a great cost to following Jesus in this way. Peter was called to follow Jesus even unto death. And this is true discipleship, picking up your cross and following Jesus wherever he may lead you, even if that is to suffering and death. And Peter seemed to clearly understand what Jesus was telling him, for verses 18 and 19 set the stage for the concluding verses of John's gospel. And it's here that we find Peter questioning Jesus about what would become of John. Having been told what would happen to himself, Peter asked Jesus in verse 21, Lord, what about this man? John had apparently been following Jesus and Peter as they had walked along the beach talking. And while some speculate here about there being some sort of competitiveness, some sort of rivalry between John and Peter, I think what we see is Peter's genuine concern for John. We can think about how much these men had been together during Jesus's ministry. They, they were among the inner circle of the disciples, and, and now as they looked out at life after the resurrection, there's a sense that they are beginning to understand that the Lord had big plans for them as leaders of his church. Jesus has shared with Peter about his calling and future, but while Jesus is freely revealing information about what is to come, Peter wants to know about his friend John as well. And so I think it is concern and love that compels Peter to ask Jesus this question. And it, and it seems like a very human thing to ask of Jesus, right? Given the opportunity to ask Jesus, wouldn't we want to perhaps know about our loved ones? Lord, what about my spouse? What, what about my child? What about my grandchild? What about my brother, my sister? What about my dear friend? What is he or she going to be called to? Will, will he or she do great things for God's kingdom? Will he or she be called to some important task? Will he or she be faithful in obedience to Jesus? Will he or she face hardship? suffering, martyrdom. And we do this, don't we? If, if we find out we have some sort of medical condition, one of the first things we want to know is if our loved ones might be afflicted with the same issue one day. Will my younger sibling, my child, my grandchild have to deal with this same sort of struggle? This is what Peter is asking. Jesus has a sharp reply to Peter's inquiry, though. He responds, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, John goes on to clarify for us that Jesus didn't say that he, John, wasn't going to die before Jesus returned. The point wasn't to say what would happen with John, but rather to emphasize to Peter that it wasn't his concern. 
What Jesus has essentially said is, it isn't any of your business what happens with John. Peter's concern should be on the calling that Jesus has given to him. His concern should be following Jesus in the way that Jesus has instructed him to follow. And while this might seem at first glance to be sort of an odd sort of story, while it it might be a strange way for John to end his gospel, this is the main point of these concluding verses. John ends his gospel emphasizing what Jesus has made clear to Peter. You follow me. You run the race that I have given to you to run. That isn't explicitly stated here in that way, but make no mistake, that is the message. And it's important enough for John to conclude his gospel in this way, run your race. It's also important enough for us to find this metaphor of running a race used repeatedly in Scripture. We find it from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, where he writes, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul draws to mind the athlete who is training for the ancient Olympic Games. Athletes were and still are disciplined in their training in order that they might be able to compete at the highest level, that they might be able to position themselves to win the prize they are competing for. So it is with the Christian life, Paul tells us. For the prize we are after is far greater than a wreath made from leaves or even a gold medal. It is eternal life in the presence of God. Run the race well, Paul is telling us. Paul comes back to this metaphor of running a race as he approaches the end of his earthly life. This is a metaphor he chooses to describe his life in Christian witness. He writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, we probably all know this passage. It's commonly used around the death of a faithful Christian. Even if that individual didn't die a martyr's death like Paul, even if he or she didn't have a ministry like Paul, we understand that the Christian life is like a race that is to be run for the Lord. And we know that it isn't a sprint. It's not a hundred yard dash finished in a few seconds. It's a marathon. It's a race that has a beginning and a finish line. And in between, there is a, a long and difficult course. But we are called to stay the course until the end, grinding it out on the path that the Lord has set us on. And perhaps the passage that speaks 
of this with the greatest clarity is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It states, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is another familiar passage to us, and it's very relevant to John 21 because both are warning us of the same dangers in the race of the Christian life and offering us some of the same encouragements. And so as we conclude John's gospel, we want to consider this this morning. We want to consider the race we are called to run. What are the obstacles? What are we warned of here in the conversation between Jesus and Peter concerning the race that is the Christian life? What are our encouragements as we run? What help are we offered? So I want to point you to two warnings found here and one encouragement. Two warnings and one encouragement. The first, we're going to deal with the warnings. And the first warning is this. Don't take your eyes off the goal and start looking around. Don't take your eyes off the goal and start looking around. Now, I have to be honest, I have never run a long race. I have never run a race more than a 5K. Truthfully, I don't really enjoy running unless I am running for some reason other than running. I like to run when I'm playing baseball or soccer, but I have never considered running on a cross-country team, for instance. I have no practical knowledge about running long races. My sister, on the other hand, is a marathon runner. I think she's a little crazy. Frankly, I can't imagine what in the world would compel a person to run that far. But I do know about competing in long races. I think I've shared before that I was a competitive swimmer when I was younger, and I swam for a team whose coach liked us not only to compete as individuals, but also as a member of the team, which meant we needed to swim as many events as possible so that we got as many points as possible for the team. You get points by placing in an event, so he made us sign up for every single event. And here's the deal. I was a sprinter. I was not a distance guy. I was best at 100 meters or under. 200 meters was pushing it. But at last, I was forced to swim the 1,500-meter freestyle. It's the longest event in competitive swimming. That is just under a mile, okay? It's a long way to swim for a single event. And not surprisingly, not many people signed up for this event, so it was a sure way to place and get points for the team. But I hated it. I hated every minute of it. It was excruciatingly long. And not only was it painful to swim that far in a single event, but it was incredibly boring. In a long course pool like they use in the Olympics, it's 30 laps. In a short course pool like at the MAC, it's 60 laps. It's enough laps that you forget how many laps you've completed. So you, you literally have to have somebody at the end of the lane sticking numbers down in the water for you. So as you come to the wall to flip turn, you know how many laps you've done. 
it was very easy, or it was for me when I was swimming this event, to quit thinking about the race that I was swimming. I would start thinking about how painful it was to swim that far. I would start wishing that it were over. I would start glancing around the pool as I swam, looking at what others were doing. I would wonder about the guy who was way out ahead of me, thinking to myself, well, I'm never going to catch up with that guy. Or, or man, that guy is going to drown halfway through this race. <laughs> and I might have thought the same thing about the slow guy. And all of these things would cause me to become very distracted, to stop paying attention to the race I was swimming, to slow down, to swim the rest of the race half-heartedly. And, and I imagine that the same is true for long-distance runners. When the going gets tough, when you hit that 20-mile marker and you hit the wall, there are a lot of things working against you to take your eyes off the goal and to take your mind off the race. The pain, the exhaustion, the, the sight of those ahead of you and behind you, the sight of those standing on uh, along the course enjoying life. The boredom, the, the monotony of one foot in front of the other. There are a lot of distractions that keep you as a, a runner or a swimmer from focusing on the race you started out to complete. I, I knew as a swimmer what I wanted my split times to be. I knew the race I needed to swim to get a personal best or to, to make the finals or to win the race. But for long races, it's easy to lose focus. And this is the reason why Jesus responds to Peter in a seemingly sharp manner. Peter was called to run his own race. He was to be faithful to the task of shepherding Jesus' flock. He was to submit himself to suffering and death for the sake of Christ when that moment arrived. That was his race. And he was to run it with joy and passion and endurance. And it was important that he stay focused on his race. So what would become of John really wasn't his concern. Having that knowledge wasn't going to help him in the slightest. In fact, it would be an obstacle from being faithful to his own calling. And Jesus is telling Peter here, don't worry what others are called to do. Don't concern yourself with God's will for anyone else's life. You run the race you've been called to to serve the Lord with the gifts he's given to you in the way in which he's called you to serve him. You run the race in a way that's faithful each and every day in every little detail of your life. You run the race in being faithful with your work and your play. You run the race in being faithful with your family and with your friends. You run the race being faithful when you are alone. You be faithful in how you dress and how you talk in the movies you watch and the books you read. You run your race even unto death. You run your own race. The reality was that Jesus had given Peter and John different gifts and, and different tasks. Both were called to a life of faithful discipleship. Both were called to glorify Jesus in their leadership in the early church, but their paths would be completely different. As one commentator states so well, Peter would be the shepherd, John the seer. Peter the preacher, John the penman. Peter the foundational witness, John the faithful writer. Peter would die in agony and passion of martyrdom. John would live on to great age and would pass away in quiet serenity. 
How would any, how would knowing any of that about John help Peter? It, it, it really wouldn't. Jesus knew it could and would be a significant distraction to Peter. And the same is true of all of us. We are all to share the same call of discipleship. We are all called to follow Jesus, but we have very different paths of discipleship. We all have the same end goal to glorify Jesus, to receive the crown of righteousness that's been laid up for us, that is ours by faith in Jesus. But we are called to run the race the Lord has given to us as individuals, which is going to set us on very different paths. I, I can't run my wife's race. I can't run my friend's race. I can't run the race that my parents have run. I can't run my children's race for them. I have to run my own race. Some of you are called to the field of education, some to the field of medicine, some to the field of agriculture, some to the field of technology, some to law. Some are called to be businessmen and women. Some of us are called to be pastors. Some of you are called to perhaps the hardest job with the least recognition. You're called to be stay-at-home mothers. We're given a variety of callings, and even within our respective fields, we are called to serve the Lord in a unique way. I am not called to be John Mabry or Scott Cheatwood. We're all called to be pastors, but each of us is called to serve in unique ways. We share some of the same gifts, but we are to use these gifts in ways that are unique to each of us. Now, that doesn't mean we can't learn from one another. It, it, it doesn't mean that we can't provide an example to one another, that we shouldn't be an encouragement to one another. The writer of Hebrews tells us that there's a great cloud of witnesses who surround us as we run. It's the faithful witness of those who have gone before us, showing us what running the race faithfully looks like, demonstrating that faithfulness to the end is possible and rewarding. It should encourage us. It should set before us an example of perseverance. And we have those around us who we can look at and give thanks for their faithful witness. But I'm in deep trouble if I start looking at someone else and focusing my attention on what that person is doing and not what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm in trouble if I start looking at another pastor and trying to be that pastor. I'm in trouble if I start looking at somebody outside pastoral ministry, wishing I weren't a pastor at all, thinking that the grass is greener in some other vocation. And the grass is always greener, isn't it? Let's be honest, it's easy to sometimes start looking around. It's easy to look around at what others are doing, at the paths that others are called to take, and you might look at someone else and think to yourself that you drew the short straw when Jesus was handing out callings and paths, right? He gave you the hard path. He put you on the, he, he, he gave you the hard calling. So-and-so got the fun task, he got the easy road. And the reality is that some of us might be called to endure great suffering in life like Peter was. We might face financial difficulties, health issues, significant loss, terms of material possessions or relationships. We might have to endure long periods of loneliness. We might face difficult trials and painful persecution. The list could go on and on. Some of us might face challenges like Job did while others of us seemingly live a relatively easy life. We might have a wonderful family, a wonderful job, material riches, good health, and it, it might seem like everything goes our way. Only 
The Lord knows what he has for each of us, though. He knows the ways in which we will bring him glory through our living and through our circumstances. He knows what is needed for our sanctification and growth in grace. So what would happen if Peter heard that John was going to be a great theologian who would spend his life pondering and writing, that he would be given a free island vacation, that he would receive this incredible vision and and would die of natural causes as an old man. Well, Peter might not take that so well after being told what awaited him. Looking at others might create in us jealousy. It might create in us envy. It might be a source of frustration or bitterness in us toward the Lord. Focusing on someone else might take you down a path of trying to emulate what someone else is doing when you weren't called to that. Or you might look at someone who's outside the faith and be tempted to live in very worldly ways. We might long for worldly pleasures, worldly recognition, worldly rewards. We might simply sit back and relax as we compare ourselves to someone else. You know, we might think to ourselves, well, I can take it easy because I'm already doing way more than that person's doing. I can tell you this, I never got personal bests in swimming pacing myself against weaker swimmers or giving in when things got difficult. Dearly beloved, taking our eyes off the goal can be a major obstacle for us in running the race Jesus has called us to run. It takes us way off course, calls us to attempt to do things that we don't have the gifts to do while neglecting the gifts we do have. It can lead us into sin, cause us to miss opportunities to glorify the Lord in the race he's called us to run. So Jesus says to Peter and to us, it isn't any of your business what others are called to do. You follow me. Lay aside the weight and sin of comparing your calling and your path to others. Lay aside the weight and sin of jealousy, of envy, of spiritual sloth. Run with focus and endurance. The second warning we have here in this passage is be careful not to have false expectations and hopes. Be careful not to have false expectations and hopes. It would have been a very bad thing for me to dive into a pool thinking I was swimming a 200-meter race when, in fact, I was in a 1,500-meter race. I would have gone out way too fast. I would not have been able to finish the race. I would have been greatly disappointed when I stopped at 200 meters and was told to keep going. And this is precisely what John seems to be concerned with in his own community. Verse 24, John writes, So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Apparently, a rumor had spread from this conversation between Jesus and Peter that John would not die before Jesus returned. And the reason why John is concerned about false expectations and hopes is that he understood that these could be serious hindrances from running well the race that Jesus has called us to run. But what would happen, after all, to those who had this expectation when John died? Would their faith be crushed that John had died and Jesus hadn't returned? Would their hope that Jesus would return at all be shaken? And even while John lived, what, what would their hope of Jesus' 
eminent return result in in terms of their everyday living? Would they shut the world out in an attempt to keep themselves pure? Would they fail to keep up long, take up long-term goals, believing that any lengthy venture would never be completed? But in his writings, John indicates that only God knows the timeline for Jesus' return. In his writing, he makes clear that Christians are not to be of the world, but we are supposed to be in the world. Jesus shouldn't return to find us idle, but he should find us working away for his kingdom. Having false expectations and hopes can, be, can have very serious negative implications. If truth be told, our expectations and hopes shape how we run the race from the outset, for better or for worse. We begin running with the finish line, the prize in mind. Our hope in the prize shapes the beginning, shapes the middle, shapes the end of our race. What we understand the Christian hope to be will shape our race at every point. So it is extraordinarily important that we have a hope based in the truths of scripture. But it isn't just our hope for Jesus's return that could be in the wrong place. We might have false expectations about what the Christian life is, especially in our context with the popularity and prominence of the wealth, health, and prosperity gospel. There are many who falsely believe that placing faith in Jesus makes life easier, that all our troubles disappear, that we aren't susceptible to suffering. The Bible doesn't teach this, though. Peter says not to be surprised when the fiery trial comes. Jesus tells us that following him causes the world to despise us as it despised him. Or we might have the false expectations and hopes about our devotional life. We might wrongly believe that we should have some powerful experience every time we step foot in worship. We might think that every prayer we utter should have some obvious and apparent answer. And if it doesn't, then either our faith is too small or our prayers are not prayed correctly. We might think that every verse of the Bible has an abundantly clear message that we can immediately understand without any study. Believing these things will discourage our worship, our prayer life, and our reading of God's word. And we won't be able to run our race faithfully. Or we might have false expectations and hopes infecting our doctrine. We might fall into some sort of hyper-Calvinism in which we believe that since God is sovereign and will save those whom he has chosen, that we don't need to evangelize at all. Or since God will persevere as saints, it really doesn't matter if we sin or how much we sin since we have professed faith in Jesus and will be saved in the end anyhow. Or we might have the opposite issue. We might believe that we need to work our way into heaven, that our, our justification is found in good deeds. These things all prohibit us from running the race God has called us to run. So be careful to keep your eyes on the goal and to have proper hopes and expectations. But before we conclude, there is an encouragement in all of this as we seek to run our race faithfully. And it's this, John wants us to know here that there is plenty to set our hope on in Jesus Christ without setting our hope on false things. John concludes his gospel with this, now there are also many other things that Jesus did, 
were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. As John concludes his gospel, John wants to highlight here the boundless beauty and greatness of Jesus. The last words of his gospel are about how there is no limit to the riches that can be found in Jesus Christ. They will never be exhausted. As one commentator states, so in eternity our exploration will go on in ways at present beyond our imagining as we discover more and yet more of the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what we have to look forward to in eternity. You, dearly beloved, will never come to the end of the grace and love and goodness of Jesus Christ. And this is why the author of Hebrews tells us to set our eyes on him as we run. Don't look around, just focus on Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who has given his life, has suffered and died as an atonement for your sin. He is the one who has defeated death and conquered the grave. He is the one in whom we find eternal delight and pleasures evermore. Jesus is the goal of our salvation. He is our prize. And he is actually more wonderful than any of us can imagine. This is John's closing word to us as he encourages us to have faith in Jesus and run well this race that the Lord has placed before each of us. Brother and sister at mile 20, when you begin to hit the wall and the thought begins to creep into your mind that perhaps you can't make it to the finish line, look to Jesus. Trust, trust his power to carry you home. And know that he is totally worth all the trial and tribulation. He is totally worth all the striving and hard work. He is totally worth putting to death your flesh. He is totally worth expending every ounce of yourself in service to him. If only to receive him. He is worth it all. Run your race. Run your race, brothers and sister. Receive the prize. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious. Lord, you have not withheld from us your beloved son and so lord we come humbled grateful filled with the joy of your salvation and lord we know that life is a grind sometimes that we are faced with trials and tribulations lord help us to keep our eyes on jesus Fill us with the power of your spirit. Persevere us to the end, Lord. Help us to run the race well, to finish the race well, to receive the prize of our salvation, Jesus Christ. Encourage us this day by your gospel, for we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.
in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one. Believer, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong. 